You're here with Claudia Herzenfelder, the International Student Affairs Commissioner for the SGPS, and we're going to speak to some graduate and professional students here at Queen's University about their research and how it stretches beyond Canadian borders. What are some of the opportunities and challenges this has afforded them? Let's find out. This is Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. In this episode of Beyond Canada, we're doing things a little bit differently. Instead of me sitting down and speaking with a graduate student one-on-one, I listened in on an international research seminar about Ghana. Here, we hear three graduate students speaking about their research on the country. First, we hear Priscilla Pronti from Geography. She's speaking about sustaining Ghana's development, the pros and cons of renewables in the energy sector. Next, we hear from Joseph Brahma, also from Geography, but this time speaking about understanding elderly care in Ghana, his field experiences, and some of his preliminary findings. Finally, we hear from James Kwateng Yaboa from Cultural Studies, who's speaking about how God became Ghanaian, navigating religion and development in Africa. Sustaining Ghana's development, the pros and cons of renewable energy in the energy sector. And how I'm going to structure, I don't have slides, um, pardon me, I don't have slides for this presentation, but how I'm going to structure is I'm going to look broadly at what has brought about the need for renewable energy, diving deep into um, more specifically the context of Africa as well as how resources are being put into renewable energy development in Africa, and then I'll move on to the implications of these investments in renewable energy in Africa. And this, these ideas that I'll be presenting is going to form part of my own research work that I'm still working through. So I don't have everything figured out yet, but then I'm sort of like sharing my initial research, initial ideas, and I'm open to a lot of feedback from all of you. So for the past few um, decades, renewable energy has become a central issue when we are talking about a sustainable or a carbon-free future. And for both the local as well as the global stages, um, there's mention of improving renewable energy technologies. There's also mention of financing renewable energy and deployment of renewable energy to different um, geographic locations. Renewable energy has um, of late become very critical because of the climate, the threat from climate change. And the IPCC tells us that if global warming levels are not maintained or reduced below 1.5 degrees Celsius, then we are in for a catastrophe where we would have um, extreme weather events in terms of floods, um, as well as droughts and so many other events that would happen. Not only are these events going to increase in frequency as well as in number or, or intensity, but then the geographic or the spatial distribution of these events are going to shift. So you find out that places where um, they didn't used to experience climb, um, sort of extreme events like floods will now begin to experience floods. And places where there were not much um, experiences of drought will now begin to experience like intense um, forms of drought. And so this sort of poses um, a challenge to how these countries or these geographic locations are able to respond quickly to these events because if you've not experienced it before, you don't have the mitigating measures, you don't have the resources um, available to quickly respond when these um, events happen. So these are some of the things that are necessitating the, the occurrence or the push for renewable energy on the global front. Um, an example of this event is one of my profs told me that in Kingston here there was 
some years back there was no occurrence of Lyme ticks and so there was not, not much occurrence of Lyme disease but now it's become a very common phenomenon. So these are some of the things that would be expecting as a result of climate change. And therefore there's a need to move be, um, beyond the current energy sources that we use towards a much more renewable energy source. Um, in addition to climate change, um, renewable energy is being portrayed as a solution to the inadequate access to um, energy sources, in, mostly in rural and isolated communities. So in the literature, what you find is that um, there's discourses of how renewable energy in terms of microgrids can be extended to um, remote communities to get access to electricity, which would in turn um, improve upon the economic activities within, within these communities as well as um, sort of alleviate poverty and all that. So all these discourses are being pushed forward as the reason why we should have or we should go towards a renewable energy future. And we can see the urgency in the, uh, in the need for renewable energy. There are a number of policies, both on the international and um, regional fronts, that talks about renewable energy, climate change, and all that. Um, on the international front, we have the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, we have the Kyoto Protocol that was adopted in 1997. We have the Daho Amendment that came after <coughs> the Pro Kyoto Protocol. We have the Paris Climate Agreement. We have the Millennium and Sustainable Development Goals. All these goals, all these agreements are geared towards shifting the kinds of uh, moving us away from the fossil fuel use towards renewable energy, among many other things that these um, protocols and amendments um, sort of address. Um, on the regional level, that's in terms of Africa, there are a number of policies, and this list is in no wise uh, exhaustive. There are so many of them that I've left out. But we have the African Union Strategy on Climate Change. We have the Framework for Southern and Northern African Climate Change Programs. We have the African Pledge that took place this year in um, Nairobi, all geared towards renewable energy um, uptake. However, what um, these policies and these agreements have done is to increase the number of projects in renewable energy that's taken place on the African con uh, continent. And um, just to give you an example, in 2009, Morocco began an, an 8.8 8, um, 8 .8 billion dollar, 10-year, 2,000 megawatt solar energy project um, in Morocco. In uh, 2018, Kenya secured 1.4 billion dollars towards renewable energy, as well as Ghana also in 2019, secured 230 million dollars towards renewable energy projects. And while we cannot dispute the fact that these energy projects, these renewable energy projects, are leading to transformations at the local level where people did not have access to it, now get access to it. The, the big question that begs to be asked is where is the finances coming from? Who is investing these large and huge amounts of money into the African continent towards renewable energy? And what are the implications of these investments on the political, economic, blah, 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 of, of the <laughs> nations that are receiving, that are receiving this, um, this money? So the World Bank says that it's invested over $200 million in, subs in West Africa and the Sahel region only towards renewable energy. And Mali also received $22.7 million from the World Bank towards its renewable energy project. It's not only the World Bank that, that is investing in Africa. We have the African Development Bank. We have the European Union investing. We have U.S., Canada, um, 
um, Italy, so many different parties are playing a role in um, in the push towards renewable energy in uh, in Africa. So the suspicion that arises is, although the um, SDGs, although the Paris Agreement um, sort of states that developed countries should assist developing countries in meeting these renewable energy or climate change targets, the suspicion that comes is, are these um, loans or are these monies being pumped into Africa just to fulfill these non-mandatory um, suggestions by the UN or whichever uh, body that is making those ones. And these suspicions are validated when you look at the fact that in Morocco, the production of um, the solar energies is intended to feed into the European Union's demand for energy. So it's intended to contribute about 15% of EU's demand for, uh, for energy. And you also look at the fact that now Africa has been identified or classified as a region where there's a huge market for renewable energy technologies, which mostly are produced or owned, or these companies that produce these renewable energy com um, technologies are owned by Western firms or firms within the global north. So then there's a big issue as to, are these investments just for the benefit of Africans, and that's what is being portrayed in the media, right? That renewable energy in Africa is going to lead to these benefits for Africans without a critical analysis of whose interest actually is being served. And what I'm hoping to do is that these discourses or these dimensions of renewable energy blends um, smoothly into the argument or into the theory of racial capitalism, right? Where you find out that a particular race is being exploited for the benefit of another race. And if you look at the example of uh, Morocco, you find out that although the people that live in the area where these um, solar panels are going to be established or have been established were strongly opposed to the, um, were strongly opposed to its establishment, their concerns were made as a technocratic um, sort of like problem. So what that, what it did was that they said, oh, these people do not understand the benefits that renewable energy is going to give to Morocco, or these people are just um, opposing this project because maybe there, were, there was not much consultation with these people, not addressing the very fact that there's displacement being involved, the concerns of the people in terms of how they are even accessing the benefits of these renewable energy process, whether they would actually get a fair share of both the monies and the energy that is being produced, um, was negating all these concerns that the people have for the benefit of the people in the in the uh, European Union. So these are some of the um, things I would like or I'll be looking at in my research work, right? Not looking at the superficial aspect of renewable energy, but digging deep to look at the interest that is being portrayed within these renewable energy projects and how those interests play out in terms of racial um, capitalism, in terms of so many different concepts that you could think about that comes into play with those ones. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, okay. So when um, Claudia contacted me to give a talk, um, I was like, what do you want me to talk about? And she said, everything. So I would try to talk about everything. 
So I just returned from the field. The whole summer I was in Ghana collecting my data. So I'm going to provide a background to my study and then I talk about some of the methods I used whilst on the field and then some preliminary findings and then maybe some field experiences where I'll share one or two pictures whilst I was in Ghana. So by way of statistics, um, there are reports that the older population in Ghana, both in terms of numbers and proportions, are increasing. For instance, as of 1975, we had just 3.7% of the population being old. By 2010, it had increased to 5.8%, and it's projected that 2050 will be around 12.6%. And in Ghana, when we talk about older population, we are looking at people who are 60 years and above. So the concept of older people or aging is complex, and it depends on the context. In Canada, these people are referred to people who are 65 years and above, but then WHO talks about 60 years and above. So usually they use the age of retirement as a benchmark for the older population. So within the context of Ghana, largely care for these older people is from social networks. And when we talk about social networks, we're looking at the family, friends, and maybe other community members. So here we have um, little institutional or support system for the older population. And it's just in Accra that we have like two, three care homes for the older population. Aside that, especially if you go to rural areas, is the family members who are supposed to take care of um, these older people. And at the same time, given that Ghana's economy is largely informal, pension or retirement schemes are rare. So you have a lot of people who are old, but they are not benefiting in any way. Well, the government has over the years, you know, tried implementing a number of policies to support the older population, such as um, the Livelihood Empowerment Against Poverty Program. But then this policy, like many policies there, has a lot of challenges. Usually the money doesn't come even when it comes, it's very little, and even a lot of people are left out. So interestingly, the people I interviewed, they were telling me, okay, they hear about um, older people in other communities getting that support, but it doesn't come to them. They don't benefit in any way from it. So even those policies are limited. And so when I began thinking about it, I did some bit of research and realized that, in fact, um, research on the older population in Ghana and the African sub-region is very scarce. We don't have a lot of studies there. So I decided to go into it. So over the summer, I did, um, I used a mixed method approach. And so I decided to look at the whole country. Yes, so <laughs> this is what I did. Ghana has three main agroecological zones. So we have the northern part, the savannah. We have the middle part, the forest belt, and the coastal zone. So I selected one region or province from each of these ecological zones so that I could get <coughs> variations. So I did surveys and conducted 1,200 surveys. It looks a lot, yeah. Then I also did some interviews interviewed 50 older people. Then I also interviewed st staff of social welfare department. And the social welfare department is um, one of the departments that is supposed to take care of the vulnerable in the society. So it is um, kind of embedded within the local governance system in Ghana. Also the sharing circles. I don't know how many of us have heard our sharing circles. It's more like an indigenous research methodology. Well, it has, in a way, been used in the Ghanaian context. We have oral histories, but then it's not formal within the academia. So 
I decided to see if I could implement this. It is not conceptually different from focus group. Well, conceptually, it is different from focus groups. But then when I went to the field, I tried using it and realized there wasn't much difference between this method and uh, focus group discussions. So I have started um, analyzing my qualitative data for the quantitative. I've still packed it somewhere. Yeah, because I want those are numbers and I can get to them anytime. And so one of the teams I made was care give out migration and care receive. So um, migration to urban areas is a very common thing over there. And what happens is that you find people who are supposed to provide care for these older people, they are primary caregivers, having to migrate to urban areas or to other rural areas to enhance their economic opportunities. What happens is that some of these people go, the expectations are not met. So you go, you don't find a good job. What happens? Your people behind probably not take care of them. And so lack of support was uh, mentioned as one of the issues emerging from the out-migration of caregivers. And then as a way to manage, these older people behind tend to use a lot of strategies, including begging. So you find a lot of them maybe at the roadside having to beg to survive. You also have some engaged in trading. And also farming is a common thing that the older population engaging. Another issue or key theme was food insecurity. And um, it emerged that this has psychosocial impacts on the older population, especially those in the northern part of Ghana, where over 80% of household livelihoods depends on agriculture. So these people, by their nature, are functionally limited. They cannot do a lot of work, but they have to depend on agriculture to survive. So what happens to them? So you see them, they go to the farm every day, but then at the end, harvest is poor. So food insecurity was also mentioned as a big issue. Then the final one on the qualitative aspect is um, access to water and sanitation facilities. Of course, um, you go to the rural areas, you don't have this um, Toilets and things like that. It's most of mostly um, openification, and this person is old. They cannot walk, but they have to walk distance, maybe to <coughs> outskirts of the community to use or to ease themselves. And given their functional restriction, it becomes very difficult. Another issue is water. Generally, you have to walk longer distance to fetch water. But for these people, until they get somebody supporting them, it means they have to walk that far themselves to be able to draw water. So water and sanitation was also mentioned as um, a big issue. Well, so research here, like many other places, um, I encountered a lot of challenges when I was there, but it's common with research. And one of them was uh, medical issues, both for myself and then uh, my participants. So there was a time I was interviewing this man. So we were just chatting. Along the line, I realized he wasn't responding very well, and he just collapsed. So I became confused immediately, and there were some young men sitting. I called them, and then I asked if they had a health facility for us to take the person. They said no. So they had to take the man to his house. And even if there was a health facility, I cannot take somebody's family member to the hospital without the person's notice or knowledge. So they had to take the man to his house before. So I stayed for a while, then I followed up. Interestingly, when I got there, this guy 
was feeding his poultry. So I asked, and his main concern was that he had disgraced himself in front of me. He didn't care about his sickness. I was like, oh no, there's something wrong with you. And it, 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 it emerged that that morning he went in for some little alcohol and he hadn't eaten anything. So yeah, it was a big issue on the floor. Sometimes you have to spend money that you don't anticipate. So the young men who took him there when I was about leaving the community, they called me and they were like, ah, can't I get them anything to drink water? Because <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and there are some of the people you talk to and when you are done, you'll be like, oh yeah, you wasted my time, so you should get me something little. So you spend money that you don't expect. And then informed consent. These are older people. <coughs> some of them, their family members are taking care of them. So before you talk to them, you definitely have to ask for permission from the family members. Some of whom wanted to be there to listen to your conversations with them. But the issue is, I'm asking about the care they receive. So if you, the one that is supposed to provide care, is sitting there, obviously the responses will be by us. So I had to escape and it was a big challenge. And for older people, and Ghana is um, a mix of cultures, maybe James will be talking about it. So when you go to every place, you have to understand the culture and some of the questions or the language, appropriate language that could be used. So it was a bit difficult for me. And for the northern part where I speak a lot of languages and understand the culture was okay, but then the middle and the southern belt. So I had to seek support from people. And then, yeah, there were not two. So maybe, okay, so maybe if any of you wants to go to Ghana to collect data or any other part of country, you have to think about the weather. Well, I went in summer, and that is the raining season in the northern part of Ghana. So there were certain times that you're on the field and then the clouds are gathered. So on, on, on one instance, I was beaten seriously by the rain and I had to get some shelter yeah, that I shared with some animals around. But the interesting part is that I don't know if you people can see somebody at the far end there. So when it's raining, that's the time the thieves get the opportunity to operate. So once I was there with the animals, this girl was asked to come and watch over me. So that I don't steal. <laughs> so that I don't steal any animal. So yeah, you may go to some areas that people begin suspecting you. They don't know what you are. You are there for. Well, I I, I was a bit fortunate. My sister has this old truck that I managed when I was there. But then there were certain times I had breakdowns, and I was always alone. Like if you are traveling far, then yeah, and. On one instance, I went to a rural area, tried to interview some people, then I was trying to turn and then I got stuck. So I had to seek help. So transportation too might be an issue. So if you're going to those kind of environments, you may want to think about. Well, enough of the challenges, fun time. So <laughs> I, 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 for the service, I had to get a couple of research assistants and they were very nice, very good. And it's very easy to find people to support you to collect data in Ghana. It's just that you should be ready to spend some bit of money. Yeah, so when we finished everything, we decided to enjoy some banku. And then, yeah, at my personal level, oh yeah, there was a time we went somewhere and then we, we found this little guy selling nice meats that we had to stand by. And it's, it's, it's something common in Ghana. Like, 
you have kebab sellers at a roadside that while you are collecting your data, you can always make use of. Yeah, I also enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, Ghana too has very nice, nice beaches along the coast. So all work and no place. So there were certain times I had to take a break <laughs> to go and then enjoy, you know. Don't worry, the, the green bottle is always there. It's, it's supposed to, yeah, yeah. All right, thank you so much. <laughs> Okay, so I think it's always good when you're the last speaker so that you can use more time than. <laughs> All right, so um, my, my presentation has been titled uh, How God Became Ghanaian Navigating Religion and Development in Africa. And um, I don't know if I'm blocking any. Can you also? I'm blocking you. Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> So I'll try as much as possible to be very descriptive with a lot of, uh, with pictures and ideas with my with my work. So um, over here you can see an image. You can see an image here uh, near the title, and uh, there are a couple of things in that image. Um, you can see the flag of Ghana at the right hand side. You can also see someone lifting up his hand or his hands and uh, praying. And you can also see the words of the prayer on the image. And uh, you can see also a title at the left-hand side bottom, um, words written, overturning national crisis. So for me, this picture actually sums up how God became Ghanaian, and I'm going to talk more about that. So um, in this presentation, I, I want to actually discuss some of the ways in which Ghanaians, and not only Ghanaians, but also Africans, you know, they have incorporated the Christian God and to the realities of their own culture and their own society. Uh, in the second part, I'll introduce religion into the development debate uh, with specific emphasis in uh, the sub-Saharan region and then Ghana as well. So uh, actually the main point that I want to drive home today is that um, many at times we hear that Africa is a land of uh, natural resources. Okay, but what I want to go further to say is that Africa is also a land of uh, religious resources. Okay, religion, to a large extent, permeates the, the social fabric of Africa. So um, if Ghana wants to develop in the next century, uh, there's a need to move away from the very narrow economic paradigm of development, very narrow neoliberal economic paradigm of development, to a more holistic idea of human flourishing. Okay, that explores all human resources, both material and non-material, economic and non-economic. Now this argument or this point I'm saying is very important because in Ghana, actually religion shows no sign of disappearing, like you find in Europe or North America. And um, also in many parts of Africa, there's no neat separation between the church and the state, like you'd have in the European history. And also, there's no neat separation between the secular and the religious. I mean the secular and the sacred. The secular and the sacred, or the sacred and the profane. So let's zoom straight into Ghana and talk about God in Ghana. Now, God can be encountered everywhere in Ghana in very simple greetings like, how are you? A Ghanaian can respond, by God's grace, I'm fine. <laughs> someone already responded. In the language that is mostly spoken in Ghana, someone will respond, that means by God's grace, I'm fine. Um, in making future plans, 
Ghanaians will always add the words, if God permits. Um, in exchange, doing favors and then, you know, uh, gifts from people, Ghanaians will always respond, thank God. In fact, the very national anthem of Ghana begins with God. God bless our homeland, Ghana. So there's, always, there's this pervasive sense of God in Ghana. And this is not only in Ghana, but also in various parts of Africa. And not even Africa, but elsewhere as well. You realize that religious beliefs and practices permeates you know, um, um, the society a lot. So what you see here is actually a bus. Uh, it's, a, it's a public transport. And I, can, I hope you can see what is written over there. On Shekabu Jesus. I don't know if you can see. But actually when you come to Ghana, you find a lot of inscriptions like this. You know, um, even though the vision tarries, it will surely come to pass. Now, this picture says, heaven's gate, no bribe. <laughs> so, the point I'm trying to say is that religion is a normal part of the social fabric. So, if you talk about resources, why not talk about religious resources? Now, when I say religious resources, a lot of scholars have done research about how religion relates to development. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But uh, there are four key areas of our religion or dimensions of our religion we can explore when it comes to development. One, religious ideas. Two, religious practices. Three, religious organizations. And four, religious experiences. Now, what I'll be doing here today, we're talking about religious ideas and religious organizations in terms of uh, Pentecostal charismatic churches and Pentecostal charismatic ideas. So before I move into Pentecostal charismatic ideas, let's talk a bit about religion. Now, many times when people hear the word religion, it's often equated exclusively to European, colonial, Christian mission. You know, people always think about religion in terms of how many people are attending the church, or how many people believe in God, or how many people believe in the Bible. You know, these are very European, Western, Christocentric ways of, you know, thinking about religion. But when you come to, you know, Ghana, when you come to Ghana and many parts of Africa, you realize that religion is not really equated to the institutional aspects or the organizational aspects of religion. Where you have a church in a conventional style, you know, with a set of creeds and beliefs, and people affirming, you know, a text like the Bible or the Quran or something like that. But in Ghana, in many parts of Africa, religion actually extends further than that. So this is a definition by one of the, the uh, experts on the African religion, called Jerita Hyde. She defines religion in Africa as uh, constituting a belief in an invisible spiritual world, which is inhabited by spiritual forces and entities that are deemed to have effective powers on the material world. So in, in many parts of Africa, as in Ghana, the world, as you see right now, is not only in the material form, but it's also intricately linked with a spiritual world. So. What happens here is that from the level of a person's body, to the family, to, to the community, to the nation, and even to the globe, anything that happens in those various levels can be backed by spiritual forces. So as you see, like for example, as you see things you know, moving up, even from the society to the institutions, nothing is physical. Everything is intricately linked with the spiritual. And that is very important in understanding how people act how people think, and you know, how people see the course of things shaping their society. So let's talk a bit about Ghanaian Pentecostalism. Um, between 2014 to, let's say, date, uh, up to now, because I'm still doing this research, no, though that's not my real project. In 2014 and 2015, I went to Ghana 
and um, I, I, I did my field work there. I looked at um, Ghanaian Pentecostal charismatic churches. And when I say Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism is the fastest growing branch of Christianity in the world today. And it's growing very much in the developing world, or let me use that term, non-Western world. Or even maybe that's too problematic. In, in Africa, Asia, and then Latin America. So a lot of scholars have been looking at whether Pentecostalism is actually a force, as in a bridge, you know, to spark socioeconomic development in the region, or it's rather a barrier, you know, towards development. So when I was going to Ghana, what I was thinking about is what are the Pentecostal religious ideas there, and what are the practices they are having, and how is it shaping, you know, attitudes towards development. Specifically, I was looking at poverty reduction. Okay, but I also looked at other issues apart from that. Now, one of the first findings I had was that Pentecostalism in Ghana, to a large extent, you know, um, has a very radical conception of what development is. Now, Pentecostalists or Pentecostal, Ghanaian Pentecostals believe that, you know, inner change leads to development. That's their conception of, you know, development. Rather than changing, let's say, the environment or changing, let's say, the economy or they believe to a very large extent that, you know, inner change actually flows in the way a person behaves, it flows in the way, you know, the country will be governed, it flows in the way, let's say, the society will progress. And also, to a large extent, this transformation of subjectivity starts, like I said, with the remaking of the individual. So many scholars have written about this, or revision of consciousness, or reorientation of the person. So these are pictures that, some of them are current, actually, but they... They show, they show what I'm talking about here, as in the transformation of subjectivities. So when you look at the first picture on my left, you see uh, one of the founding fathers of uh, Ghanaian Pentecostal Charismatic Churches in Ghana. I mean, Ghanaian Pentecostal Charismatic Churches called uh, Nicholas Duncan Williams. In the picture, he says, you are destined for greatness. Now you look at the next picture. There's actually a recent program that is ongoing now in Ghana. Um, it's, it's spearheaded by the same man. And uh, over there, it's written, I'm walking in abundance, moving with the speed of the Holy Ghost. I'm favored. And over the next one, you also see, I'm anointed to make progress and advancement in my life. My promotion, therefore, comes from the Lord. It will not be delayed. I can see it. So when I say Pentecostal transformation of subjectivity, now in neoliberal development, there's much talk about individual choices, individual, you know, creativity, innovations. Now, many urban people in Ghana who are from poor, downtrodden you know, environments, when they engage in Pentecostal charismatic churches, they begin to have a change of mindset about who they are, about their sense of their, like, their, their sense of being, their sense of personhood. And that is, that is, a very, much connect, that is very much connected to neoliberal you know, ideas of subjectivity. So Pentecostal transformation of subjectivity is very much connected to neoliberal ideas of subjectivity. We can talk about that in the following uh, minutes after I'm done. The second finding I also had during my research was that Ghanaian Pentecostals, churches, and uh, members are very much interested in entrepreneurial activities. They organize a lot of programs, um, they actually have a lot of sermons, they have a lot of workshops that engineer, you know, self-employment, if I would say, like, self-entrepreneurship, like you start your own business. So during my interviews, I found out that many of the members had their own businesses. And even those who were working, let's say, with the government or with private companies, they were told to start their own business because that's where God wants them to be. It's a very popular uh, trend in many African countries now. 
And the last finding I had with uh, my research was how Pentecostal churches have very strong capacity to generate funds or money, if I would say. Now, this was very interesting to me because in Ghana, there's a very sharp discrepancy in the way the government is able to you know, task their own population vis-a-vis -vis the way churches are able to tight <laughs> from their own members. Now, if, like this, this for example, uh, is from a picture I had with uh, one of the churches, the Pentecostal churches in Ghana. Uh, I'm sure many of you might know. It was a program that they organized, and there were a huge number of people over there. Yeah, just about more than 10,000 people over there. And um, they were told to tight, you know, so that God would bless and open doors for them. And uh, there are very specific testimonies and ev evidence about how people claim they gave money out and then God opened a door in terms of jobs, in terms of businesses, in terms of real existential issues. Okay, so over there you can see millionaire status, 5,000, seed of 1,000 times, you know, all of that. And people gave money, okay, and uh, what I'm saying here is that it's very interesting how Pentecostal churches are able to actually generate money from members in developmental projects or their own church businesses vis-a-vis -vis the way the government itself is able to actually generate taxes from <laughs> the country. So that's the point, that's the point I'm making here. So what's at stake here? If you are saying you have natural resources, what about religious resources? But of course, there are also barriers. One of the barriers is, you know, exploitation. Okay, there's also an emphasis on this spirit phenomena because if everything happens and it's related to the spirit, then how can we, you know, some people who are very scientific, you know, with a modern view would ask, okay, so in this world, how would we be able to, you know, move outside that miraculous phenomena or have that spiritual phenomena in explaining, let's say, disease or in, cure, in, in, in real life, you know, like education, how would we blend all of that? So that's, of course, a barrier to development. And also there's high consumerism. You know, once you want anything, you just ask God and then God will give it to you. So the desire is always satisfied so far as it's legitimate and it's about faith. Okay, so there's a popular song, I'm sure in many parts of Africa. Um, hey, my God is good. Anything, double, double. My cast, double, double. My riches, double, double. And so there's this high consumerism, you know, that anything you desire, God is able to give it to you. And that is, I think, very consumerist in tone. And it can affect issues around sustainability. So, um, in conclusion, what I'm saying is that there's a need to shift away from this narrow economic paradigm of development. Development is not about GDP rates and, um, you know, um, um, inflation rates alone or, like, economic indices. But development, to a large extent, in sub-Saharan Africa also includes non-economic phenomena or, let's say, cultural and religious phenomena. And um, if you are exploring issues around development, why not engage religious networks? You know, I'm not saying that we should start being religious and then development will happen in Ghana. No, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we should acknowledge the ways in which religion conspicuously relates with the social and economic attitudes of many individuals. So that if you are taxing a population, why not speak to the church pastor? And then why not connect with the church pastors in the environment? I'm not saying that there should be uh, an inclusion of church and state. Of course, the separation of church and state is a uniquely European historical experience. Okay, uh, We just need to acknowledge the ways in which religion intersects with real-life situations in many parts of um, Africa. So, uh, yeah, that's my presentation. Thanks. <laughs>
So I came up with, not came up, but based on the presentations I had, um, there were a few questions or maybe clarifications that I was hoping that I could get, particularly with the presentation on religion. Very interesting presentation, actually. Um, a few of the things that I could personally relate with. But then in your presentation, you made mention of the fact that with African religion or how it's being practicalized now, there's always the emphasis on transforming yourself to be able to see the development that you sort of like are expecting. And then you sort of relate that to a neoliberal um, ideology of subjectivity, right? But then don't you think that that concept or that practice also plays a role in the West, not necessarily through religion, but through um, issues like motivational speakers, right? Where you would you would sort of attend these programs and then they sort of like empower you in, in a way that sort of makes you believe in your own abilities to be able to effect changes that you want to see, either in society or either in your own personal life. So don't you think there's a way we could connect these sort of um, ideologies, not, not necessarily seeing the difference, but seeing the similarities that exist in personalizing or in these subjectivities that come up. And then you also talk about um, tithes versus um, taxes, right? And it's a very big contention in Ghana right now where the government is thinking about ta um, taxing churches because of the huge amount of wealth that the church is able to develop or to be able to come up with. But one thing that I feel that the government is lacking in its ability to be able to tax its people is that people don't see the, the benefits they are getting from the government. You get it? As opposed to what the church offer, whether it's spiritual, whether it's the support, financial support and all that. So is there a way that government can reorient its social, social project to be able to let people see the benefits of taxes? And that's what is being done here. At least for me, I see the benefits of my taxes because I get child support, right? I get all these things that sort of like cushion me um, here and there. And so I'm ready to pay taxes on whatever income I earn. So is there a way that the government can also restructure its social provision to be able to make it um, that way? And in terms of the last one, right? In terms of your statement that... Um, you know, people always get what they want once it's backed with faith, and it's not always the truth. You know, there are people who have prayed, prayed, prayed for so many things, and they don't get it. So it's not always the truth that you get what you want so, so long as you believe, and it's within, anyway, and it's within the dictates of the Bible or whatever it is. So, yeah. Do I respond? Or I... <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, um, that, those are very thoughtful questions. Thank you. Um, with the question about the um, transformation of subjectivity and motivational speak speakers, they are very much related. Um, much of I don't I'm not I've not uh, this is just an observation as a as as someone who is studying religion and culture and society. Much of motivational speakers actually started within Christian circles. Like, I mean, even in the West, some of them have moved away from just focusing on their congregations to focusing on both religious and non-religious people or atheists and agnostics. So, for example, a typical example is like Joel Austin. Um, Joel Austin is able to appeal to different 
people from different backgrounds. It doesn't really matter whether they're Christian or not, but some of the ideas that they come up with are very much about uh, you know seeing yourself in a particular way, but just that they are stripped of sometimes religious connotations. Now, in Africa, the, the, the uniqueness is that, or in Ghana, the uniqueness about this is that um, you are speaking to people who you know, are very much having an, a history of oppression, a history of colonial extraction and extraction of resources and people who have passed through slavery and you know, passing, actually currently also passing through a lot of hardships. And so when you begin to start with that transformation of subjectivity, it's very much powerful when it's attached or packaged in a religious language. Yeah, so there are different, there are similarities with it, and there are, there are, there are, there are differences as well. With the idea about taxation and fighting, um, I don't know. Maybe when some of us become politicians in Ghana, we can see how <laughs> how we can we can. Yeah. Thanks so much for the clarification. Yeah, so um, I, I was following that that, uh, that 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 news very 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 much well. The issue is that, like with Pentecostal charismatic churches, there's accountability in a way. When you give your tithe, you you can see the end of year report from the church, and <laughs> you can see what the church is using your money for. So they are also motivated to give. And the funny thing is that it's about faith too. So. When somebody gives, and within their own life experiences, they see there are changes in their life. They even give more. Okay? But when it comes to the government, you know, you, you, you give, or some even don't give, and you don't see the change. You don't see the accountability. You don't see how it works. So people begin to, you know, and also a lot of Ghanaians are in the informal economy. Okay, um, I was writing a paper about Ghana Beyond Aid. I don't know, some of you might have heard this. So in Ghana now, the president is saying that, or has been saying a mantra, I don't know if it's a mere rhetoric, that African economies should move beyond, you know, being recipients of aid. So we should mobilize our domestic resources. You know, and I was, I was, I was saying that, okay, if you want to mobilize your domestic resources, how many of the population in Ghana have been structured that these are the taxpayers? You don't really have an accurate number of taxpayers in Ghana. You know, but when you go to the churches, they have accurate number of tight payers. And they know how much they're supposed to get at the end of the month, and they budget what they're going to use their money for. You understand what I'm saying? And it's not just one or two churches I'm talking about. These are millions. And if you look at the kind of programs they organize, like the pictures I showed, they are, they are actually taking up the role of government now. Okay? In all the organizations. So, that's where I say there's a disconnect there. If you want to talk about tightening the, uh, taxing the, the churches, of course the churches are going to withdraw back that old. There should be a, a freedom of religion, a freedom of all, you know, all of that. But that is actually, we, we need to think about that. We need to talk about that. We need to find ways of you know, dealing with that. At this stage in the conversation, the audience starts to step in with a variety of questions for the speakers. You'll note that the audio isn't great. Uh, some of them are sitting further away from the microphone, but the conversation that followed was really interesting, so I was reluctant to cut this from the episode.
position that they should give because most people in Ghana and probably Africa, when you talk about tax, they don't even know what you mean. Okay, but with these churches, they tell them that um, if you give your tithe, this that is when you are going to get. But for the tax, they don't know. So I think that is also another point that we can Thank you very much for. I don't know if I can add to what he said. You know, one thing, one thing about. One thing about giving in many African circles, not just with Christians, but even those non-Christians and indigenous circles, is that like giving to a large extent is reciprocal. So uh, in, the, in the Christian Pentecostal sense, it becomes transactional. So when you give to God, there's an expectation that that giving will activate a divine response <laughs> to your needs. You know? So people, for example, might have a need of, let's say, getting admission to school in Canada. These are very real needs, or getting scholarship, or let's say getting um, a spouse, or having, let's say, a house. And because they have been trained in the mindset that in order to get this, you need to give. And this is a mindset that is not only in Christian circles, but even in indigenous spiritualities, like African indigenous. When you go to, let's say, the shrines, or you go to the traditional priestess, you go with a gift, and you give. And then instantly, you're able to know how you're giving is responded to, like, you're able to know the recipients of it. So it translates in the Christian circles, and people actually give more, even in the, in the Pentecostal circles, when it comes to tithes. So that's, that's something to also think about. And I wonder, sorry, to switch to ask um, Priscilla about, you spoke a lot about renewable energy, and in Africa as a continent, um, what are you thinking of in terms of Ghana? Like, what is Ghana doing with regards to renewable energy? Because now you're talking about taxes here, and you're talking about renewable And I think I made a mention of quite a few examples in Ghana. There's obviously there's the World Bank. There are there are different stakeholders, sort of like promoting renewable energy in Ghana. And you have um, um, co um, communities within the Volta region, like they said Volta Islands or something like that, that have that have sort of benefited from these renewable energy projects. So there's a lot of projects going on. But then what I am looking to do is to look at not just the pro, um, projected benefits of these renewable energy projects, right? You know, because when you look at all the reason, the literature and everything, it tells you about, oh, how renewable energy is giving light to people and they are now able to work longer hours to make much more money and all that. But then what we know is that renewable energy or the development of renewable energy comes with various costs. And these costs are mainly borne by those communities who have to give up their land to be able to host these renewable energy um, resources, or have to give up various things to be able to accommodate these renewable energy uh, policies. Sometimes their uh, opposition to renewable energy is just classified as, oh, these people do not know the benefits of renewable energy, or these people might not have been consulted in an appropriate way, and therefore it's just an issue of consultation. So looking at the, the issues that I mentioned in my presentation and looking at how it plays down in the Ghanaian context is what I'm sort of like hoping to do. Mm, okay, so I, James, yeah, I'm coming back to you. So, um, so you talked about um, 
condition between, if I go you right, upon collision between government and Pentecostal churches or whatever. So I don't know if I got you right. Like my understanding is that there need to be like some coordination between how they do their things as a way to propel development and everything. If I got you right. But um, my issue is this, you know, there is really no, uh, I think religion and politics in Ghana are not mutually exclusive. They are seriously interconnected to the extent that every politician wants to visit these churches. They always, even we have our political leaders who have godparents or godfathers. <laughs> They deal with some pastors, and these religious leaders advise them, tell them what to do. So there's currently an issue of um, the government trying to spend so much money to build a national cathedral. And there is a lot of um, agitations, people are against it, but the government is bent on doing it. And there are even rumors, people are alleging that it's because of a particular you know, pastor. That is why the president wants to do it. The president had promised a pastor, whatever, if they support them to win the presidency, that's what they are going to do. So my thinking is that, um, in a way, putting the two together will probably not propel development, rather bring back development. In the sense that you find people go to church, pray right after church, they go maybe engage in corruption go do things that we didn't support. And the government is not able to take radical steps towards them. Even this whole tax thing, if the religious bodies decide that they will not accept it, the government cannot do anything because the government kind of depends on them. So with government largely depending on religious bodies, depending on pastors and everything, do you think they'll be able to push any move that will go against them in order to like, you know, bring about development in the country? It's not necessarily a question, but like a comment. that religion and the states are not separable. They are, they are linked in ways that is beyond and goes into spirit, whatever it is. If, if we've come to the conclusion that religion and the state are not separable, is there a need to push the state to do what religion is doing in terms of development? If the state is, is acting in connection with, with the churches, in connection with shrines in connection with whatever is there a need to now push the state to take up that same role that the church is doing like if we have come to the agreement that religion and the state are not separable should there be 
a separation in responsibilities? Like, should I don't know, man. Alright. Oh. <laughs> Just to contribute to your point, actually, uh, uh, thinking of that sort of religiosity or religious practice only uh, taking place in, you know, like African context or Ugandan context might be wrong, right? In Turkey, we have seen, for example, uh, like the, this flourishing, like this, this Islamist political movements with a lot of support, but at the same time, lots of um, mosques, you know, like being built, a lot of people contributing financially to the construction, but at the end they are getting some social network ties, there are schools being built, some of the services are provided by those religious communities. So, like, state responsibility, which is traditionally framed as welfare, right, is kind of taken over by the uh, religious communities themselves. So, both spiritual and I think material mm -hmm. and social. Uh, like support is provided together with a lot of contradictions uh, in itself because the rich entrepreneurs, you know, like give money for charity, the poor, you know, rely on that, but it's never a total remedy, so it's not like sustainable in many ways. Uh, so I think yeah, maybe the solution is uh, like the state taking up those responsibilities, like basic services education, healthcare, and so that, you know, like religion does not fulfill the same role as it is uh, no. doing, because it is not like a weird secularized but spiritual role, right? It's a hybrid idea. Yeah. Um, well, I need more scholars of religion in the room. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, so um, actually, let me, let me stand a bit. Um, what, I, what I want to say is that religion can be functional and dysfunctional. Okay, um, I'm not I'm not saying that there need to be a greater role for religion in development. Neither am I saying that there need to be a lesser role for religion development. What I'm saying is that religion can be functional and dysfunctional. Of course, it depends. I mean, it's not just religion, but even politics. Politics can also be functional and dysfunctional. I mean. Whatever it is, it can always be functional. There's always two sides of whatever you know you're yeah, talking about. So when it comes to um, what uh, you said about um, combining or putting together relig religious leaders and political leaders in Africa have always had very weird relationships. Okay, and in that sense, if it works well, you see the impact. If it's also dysfunctional, you see the impact. Okay, but the point is when we tend to ignore. So what, where I'm coming from is like. We ignoring the fact that there is a conspicuous relationship ongoing there between religion and the various institutions we have. And then we begin like, that's what a lot of development agencies do. That's what a lot of NGOs do, actually. They turn a blind eye, like for example, you're saying that you're, you're going to build hospitals because people are supposed to go to hospitals and not go and pray for health. So you come and you build a hospital, but you forget that people are still going to go to the church and still not. So how do you deal with that? These are real issues you are talking about here. Or for example, you think you, you, people need schools. So you go and build a school. And then on Monday, Friday evening, they will not go to school and study. They'll go for all night and pray. They'll pray the whole night. So what I'm saying here is that first, acknowledge the fact that religion is conspicuously interconnected with various dimensions. And then now we begin, begin to you know, discover how functional 
is it and how dysfunctional is it and that's when we be able to you know as development workers as scholars you know as advocates we become you know you can actually have a proper way of handling this so um, i agree yeah religious leaders and political leaders are very very you know there, there's a great relationship there and i'm not saying that there should be more cooperation between religious leaders and political leaders that's not what i'm saying you should actually look at what is going on there how functional is it how dysfunctional is it? what what have, what works what hasn't worked you know and then we can build some conversations around that and then with what um, you said actually views about religion is among the most polarized in society for a very long time critics of religion have said that religion robs people of their autonomy religion is oppressive religion is fundamentalist religion is violent religion is in, is the enemy actually the enemy of development or modernity you know and because of that there's this very you know weird assumption that um, development you know as a society progresses religion decre- decreases or if you want the 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 economy to grow then there should be less religion a lot of scholars have you know debunked these ideas through a lot of, a lot of research ethnographic studies and interviews and uh, you know statistics as well a lot of that conclusion is from western european experiences actually there's a book i don't know maybe some of you might have heard it there are a lot of scholars who started this debate like max weber you know the west the, the protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism how protestants speared you know industrial revolution through the ideas they have religiously calvinism and all of that so these ideas have always been ongoing you know how ideas change society and how institutions or structures change so the point i'm saying here is that uh, let's not have those very weird or you know extreme points like this is religion and this is development there are opposing sides because actually in the context we are coming from especially in Ghana and Africa you know that 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 is that is very problematic okay so acknowledge and then look at how functional or dysfunctional it is and then we start having a conversation yeah Churches in Canada is sent to the government, and that is one thing I want to talk about here too. That 
The church has social responsibility. The church has a vision. We think it's not better. Bethlehem has a lot of social responsibilities in Kingston, and it is monitored by the government. Bethlehem would say, this money you are giving to us is going to the government. It starts 13%. When you give up this money through this medium, the government takes 12%. So it is tightly connected to the church. But when we come to Africa, this is not the case. Africa, you put up a church building and there is no social responsibility that governments are giving to the church. So the only thing that happens in the church is that the money is just coming into the church and there is no monitoring. And the only monitoring is the development of the church. And that is how the sense of Africa is. All the money that come in Africa churches are just centered in the development of the church. But when you look at recently in the past five years, six years, let me go and this. Um, no, no, let me just go to the end. The, 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 the policy of um, free education. I can list like more than six churches that are supporting this policy. It is the church that is supporting. And that is how Africa, that is how Africa has been. Africa has been free reliant on ourselves. With the rich in the society, that is helping us more society. See, and so I, my, my, I want you to like this in what sense are you talking about development? Are you talking about development in the context of culture development? And if that is the case, then I think.
go and cross and they are going to do the same thing. But go is propagated by Western ideology. That is currently what is going on. China, for example, is a communist country. And only way we can know China is the second superpower in the world is by analyzing the economy of the Okay. So I don't know if I'm going to say yeah, I think whilst acknowledging that the two are different, growth and development, I still feel their understanding are rooted in, you know, these Western ideologies, in the sense that even we were all talking about development, maybe there is this older person there, I think the person has problems. Because I feel they don't have maybe good health care or access to good health service. I feel that they are food insecure because my definition of food insecurity, you know, comes from this capitalist view that you should have right nutrients and whatever. To so this person, they don't care about nutrients. Once they're able to get food to fill their stomachs, they think they are food secure, right? So I think that is conversations, those issues, debates are emerging within our context, but it's still very difficult at this stage if you have to, like, no, begin debating conceptual debates about you know what development is, what sure. growth is. Well, yeah, we should, <laughs> but it's. it's Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a course, and we had to read uh, Walter Rodby's book on how Europe underdeveloped Africa, right? And it's always been a, a contention on who is the standard when we look at the word developed or developing or development. Who becomes the measure? that every country has to get to and upon which criteria were these measures put in place. And you'd always find out that in terms of the use of these words, it's always a Western standard, right? A Western definition of, and I think it's just recently that the World Health Organization re redefined their definition of even what health should mean and, and blah, blah, blah. So there's always the issue of, <laughs> There's always the contention, right, in terms of whose standards are being used in terms of Africa. And even with my work, I didn't make mention of that, but it looks also at how Africa is being or has been um, imagined in the field of development. You get it? So Africa has always been identified as a hopeless continent, um, a continent that needs um, a white man to come and save it, a continent full of deficiency, and all that based on the fact that these Western ideologies are being subscribed onto Africa, right? And once you don't fall within these Western ideologies, then you become underdeveloped. And even renewable energy right now, it's been portrayed as the solution to Africa's underdevelopment, right? So these are all the discourses that we need to engage with as intellectuals. We might not have presented like everything. I don't know if other people are engaging with that, but these are some of the discourses that we need to engage with, right? In terms of who is setting the standards, how, is, how are these standards being superimposed upon the continent of Africa? What are the implications of these words, these discourses, these standards on how Africa is even imagined, how Africa is portrayed, how Africa is presented to the outside world? And if you look at like even these um, NGOs that are soliciting for funds to Africa, like all the pictures you see, and we've had that, I've had that discussion in my undergrad before, where all the pictures you see is a small child who has a fly hovering around the face or something. And this is not a, a true reflection of Africa, right? And so you find people who still have the, 
the stereotypical idea that you know some people even think we live on on trees <laughs> it will surprise you to see some people think africa is a country you know they make mention of india china and africa like you know so these are some of the things that we as intellectuals have to grapple with yeah I think for this issue, you have to also look at it from the point of globalization. You see, whether we like it or not, you would have to connect with people, especially now with... Why should it be in English? That's the point. Right? That's, that's what... That's so, so, but the point is, even you come to my country, Ghana, we have several languages there, right? And sometimes I am forced to learn some languages. Sometimes I meet people who see me and assume that once I am from Ghana, I should be able to speak some particular languages. So it is something that is innate in us. And as long as we want to interact, we want to get in touch with people, I feel like in one way or the other, you would have to learn something about the other person to be able to communicate. Of course, um, Africa couldn't have been there alone, not having touch with any part of the world and doing their own things. And and it will look it will look weird. And who now sets the standard, or how do we know that this is a common language that we all have to be able to communicate in? 
in order to you know talk or other to interact and things like that. So I feel that it is like nature and with development with globalization, some of these things tend to happen, and even and. <laughs> Yeah, so the, um, the government actually has come up with a policy where it wants to replace um, energy production in its institutions with solar energy. So that's one aspect that the government is doing, that it wants to, um, in all government buildings, have solar energy or renewable energy being the major supply of energy for, for those uh, industries, and particularly to cut down on costs. Because we know that government institutions are one of the <laughs> institutions that owe, uh, yeah, they owe a lot in terms of um, electricity generation. So there are government initiatives to sort of replace um, um, buildings, uh, uh, energy in buildings now to renewable energy. In terms of uh, training, there are um, training um, opportunities also available. The government has actually, and then it's not even Ghana only, but then Africa has a training program for renewable energy, actually. And these, that um, regional training program is being conceptualized or contextualized within different countries. So Ghana has a training program instituted for individuals and groups. But what I found was that it's many groups that are accessing it. So people that are already certified or are licensed um, electricians are the ones that are going into these training um, programs to be able to better their ability to work with renewable energy. So there are, there are training going on, but in terms of who is reaching, it's also another issue. And then in terms of subsidies and all, the government has given a huge tax break, like 
for renewable energy, it's, it's like once you are um, importing it, you don't pay taxes on it, particularly for technologies that are not being produced locally. The intention is that it's going to build, government has the mind that over a period of time, we begin to generate or we begin to produce these technologies within the country, but there's, there's tax break for anybody who is doing anything renewable, like. So if you want us to go and establish a business and <laughs> take advantage. If you want to establish a business, you need to get Jesus involved. And you need to get <laughs> energy involved. Yes. It needs to be owned and run by the owner. Um, just a minute. I, yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of uh, chip in something. Uh, so when we, when we are discussing, like, like discussions as we are having right now, we should also know the levels at which these discussions take place. So for example, this is our academic circles, right? Um, and when it comes to development also, like we need to know the dimensions these discussions take place. In academic circles, which is popularly about ideas and ideologies, if you can say. And then also in terms of policy, which actually creates the change. And then also in terms of practice, that's where you see the you know, development practitioners like agencies, uh, uh, NGOs or government or whatever doing it. So when it comes to development, sometimes you can be talking in terms of ideas only but you, you to be able to have the policy and to be able to see the change that's, that's a different dimension that's a different level you know i'm saying this because of um, the the comments that my brother made about education and you know all of that so what as scholars i think we can do is you know to kind of look at what are the the, the motivation motivations behind you know the work we do you understand that is it like for example someone would say arts for arts sake or it's you know also advocacy driven, or kind of social um, 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 justice driven, or you know policy change driven. So when you begin to move beyond the ideological and academic discourses and begin to bridge between the discussions like we're having here to going further to where the policies are made, then you can see some changes. You know, until that, I think it's 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 going to be a problem, especially for our region. You know, as in Africa and Ghanaians, yeah. So that's. that's I have my question goes to Joe. Um, so you carried out your field work in three different uh, areas in Ghana. And you highlighted some key challenges that you, you had. Um, um, I know that you are familiar with some areas and you are not quite familiar with other areas. I'm kind of wondering. So um, what I did was that um, I tried to get connections, and that's the advantage working in your home country. For some reason, I had connections in almost all the areas I went to do the work. Even if I don't know somebody, I know someone who knows another person that could help me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> for, for, for Great Accra, for instance, I don't speak Ghana. But then I have a friend who is a lecturer at the um, geography department there. And she had some students, or she knew some students who speak the language very well, who come from the area. So she linked me to them, and then we were able to go around and do. Well, when you go to the field, you still face challenges, 
but then those are things that regardless of the context, regardless of the settings, you will be able to handle. But then, yeah, basically, I relied on social networks, so it's very important when you are going to do your full work. What is the thing you miss most from Ghana? Here? And then that's going to be the last thing Are you asking them or me? Okay, anyone. <laughs> so the food and then family. Family? Yeah. What's a particular Yeah, for me, I think it's a collegiality, like the sense of community um, where you're not just alone. I'm not saying I'm alone, but like you, you see, you see, you see that sense of you know that community has like that sense of community that is very strong in um, in the home in the work institutions in the school you know everywhere you go so and that also it's very good for health and well-being you know yeah so i miss that <laughs> uh, well i think um, the food and nice pubs <laughs> <laughs> A big thank you to today's guest as well as to all of the staff here at CFRC with a special thanks to the station manager, Diana Janssen. The bed music for this podcast is Mafikizolo featuring Uhuru singing Kona. This has been Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. (laughs) 